This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's episode. Three incredible experts, Devon and Mahadeva from Baker Tilly GFC Law Firm, was on hand to take your questions on everything from giving birth to getting divorced. What do you need to know? Dr. Maram Awatai was in for the gynae clinic. Women's health, common misconceptions, polycystic ovaries and your questions answered, of course. And we were delving into ADHD with clinical psychologist Sneha John. Welcome to your free law clinic between now and five o'clock. Devna Mahadeva, director at Baker Tilly JFC Law Firm, is taking the reins and taking your questions. 4001 is the SMS. You've got the ARN play app and the WhatsApp too. How are you, sir? Keeping good. Keeping good. You're enjoying this beautiful, cool weather for all your yes. off-roading and exploring. Yes, climate is getting better so that we spend more time outside. I've been outside all weekend and it has been absolutely lovely. <laughs> I'm planning some camping for next weekend and it's it feels like it's been a long time coming. That's yes. all I'm going to say. I did a nice uh, sunrise drive yesterday. Oh, did you? Can I ask where? Uh, towards Madame. Hmm. I'll get that pin from you later. Yeah. Offer. <laughs> <laughs> right, back to the business in hand. Um, we can help with all aspects of family law today yep. from... My goodness, getting married, staying married, getting divorced. Um, and we, let's talk birth now, registration of birth here in the UAE. There's some new laws, definitely. What do we need to know? Yes, uh, there's a new law which came up in uh, 2022, uh, which has, uh, you know, as a, as a development of uh, this country into a different level, uh, they have made changes to the law. So what happens originally, if you go for a childbirth registration, the first thing they will ask you is the marriage certificate uh, of the spouses, of the parents. And based on that, only a a birth certificate will be issued. Otherwise, there is no birth certificate issued. So there were a lot of complications to that effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, as uh, UAE has allowed live-in relationship or civil partner relationships over these years, uh, by law. So now what has happened is uh, even um, if a child's parents do declare, the father and mother declare that they are the parents, they don't need to submit a marriage certificate to register a child's birth. So don't need to be married, but both need to say that they are the mother and the father and they both would be named on the birth certificate. They will be both named on the birth certificate. What if it is a single mother? Yes. If it is a single mother, there are two ways. Uh, she can get a she can get a certificate as a single mother. Mm-hmm. But if she wants to prove, um, if there is a denial on the on the paternal side, and if she wants to prove, uh, there can be a DNA test ordered. Okay. Any questions relating to that, you're more than welcome to get in touch. I just remember after I had our first, my husband going off, and we'd agreed the name we were going to give this baby. And he was like, well... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see as he skipped off to potentially change the name on the official birth certificate. But yeah, it's all a bit of a whirlwind of of um, of paperwork in those first few days. And that was with a straight, pretty straightforward, you know, birth and two British parents who happened, to, you know, who had that certificate. So it's great to see that the kind of process has been made, you know, bit more streamlined and more inclusive as well. Yes. But if you do have any questions regarding that, get in touch. I actually had a message from a friend earlier on this topic saying my nanny recently met someone from Kenya gave birth to a gorgeous baby boy here in Dubai four months ago 
She'd like to go back home to Kenya, but is having issues getting his birth certificate. But I've got no idea where to start. The Kenyan embassy is saying they can't. Any ideas about what to do? Uh, the baby was born in UAE, isn't it? Born in the UAE, but not in a hospital. Oops. Mm. So that is the complicated situation yes. because... Uh, uh, you have to get to the authorities and you have to get your certificates through. Because if they're born in the hospital, immediately the hospital will um, inform the, they will issue a certificate and that certificate you have to go to the Ministry of Health and they will issue a certificate and then uh, the municipality issues the uh, birth certificate in all the Emirates. So that's where the process starts. Yes. If that isn't the case, then what, what options are available? They may have to go in for a court order. Uh, but first thing is they have to approach the um, for the birth certificate with the Ministry of Health and they have to declare that the child was born not in a hospital. Okay. I will pass that on. Thank you so, so much. Um, we've had questions about divorce. We've had questions about adoption. We've had questions about passports. Um, and a message here saying, I was wondering if Devnant has um, information regarding giving birth as a single woman. Um, I'm hoping to undergo fertility treatment and have, have a baby here. Um, does he have any knowledge regarding this? Um, and is that possible? Would I have to leave the country for fertility treatment and also give the birth the baby outside of the UAE? Not exactly. As per present, this thing, you can, uh, present situation, you can uh, give birth to a baby and you can get a birth certificate. But the uh, complication arises is whether a hospital will be uh, ready to, um, um, ready to, you know, do a fertility treatment and uh, all this surrogacy without uh, a man involved. Okay. Message here is saying, does the birth registration apply for mixed couples, Emirati parent and a German parent? Yes, why not? Why not? There you go. Devon the Mahadeva asking, why not? But if you do want any, any further clarification, you can get in touch with us. As I said, text line's open. You've got the um, WhatsApp, of course. It's the same number as the phone line. If you do fancy a chat, if that helps. We're talking family law in particular today. We've just been touching on birth certificates um, and text lines are open. And you're a popular man. Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. A message here saying, when my son was born in December 2022, the rules changed and only one surname was allowed. Is that still the case? Apparently after a few days, the reverse, the rule change. Our sons have a double barrel surname, which is mine and my husband's combined. Okay. Good question. See, uh, it's all very system oriented. So in the, in, the, in the computer system, when they're entering and they're allowed only one surname. So what you could do is you can use the, the column of middle name as long as you want. So you put one surname in the surname column and uh, the, you use the middle name column to fill the rest of the surname. So and that fine. would that legally would be A-OK? Yeah, and because they will not actually look at the full name, isn't it? So. Okay. What about the hyphen? Grammatically, it would just annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of having a double barrel in that surname yes. box, so to speak... It's a bit tricky. They may not have the system in place to okay. do that. Computer yeah. might say no. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hope <laughs> hope that helps. Um, okay. To the text line we go. Um, no name here. And you can, of course, be completely anonymous. Um, saying both parents are Muslim. Who gets custody if either or both parents die? So this is with, with children in mind, of course. Yeah. If they're Muslims, uh, the de facto Sharia applies. Unless and until they have a will in place to supersede that. That is only applicable for... Uh, Muslims who are not Emirati nationals. So they can they can write a will and they can decide who will be the guardian if both parents are not there or if the father is not there. But otherwise, as per Sharia, the, uh, the, if the mother passes away, the de facto guardianship goes to the father. 
But if the father passes away, the de facto guardianship goes to his father, the father's father. Or if the father's father is not there, then it goes to the father's brother. And what if he's not there? Uh, then the father's father's brother's son. <laughs> or, you know, brother and brother's son. You know, there is there is a table to that effect. I'm trying to think about a family tree. Okay, say that yeah. again. The father's father's brother's son. Yeah, so father's the, father's brother. If he's also not there, father's, father's father's brother's son. The nearest male relative on the father's side. Yes, they will get the guardianship on okay. the father's side. Now, in the event, uh, like both parents are not there, again, the priority is given to the father's family. Okay. And in terms of a will kind of taking priority over that. Yeah. Are there any limitations in terms of who you can put as your request for custody of your children? No you problem. Pass? You can put anybody uh, of your choice okay. so that you don't you don't like your father-in-law, you don't like your brother-in-law, you can decide who is going to be the guardian. And this is the situation if both parents are Muslim, just to confirm? Yes. Okay. Devon and Mahadeva today with us. You can, of course, send your questions in. Message here, and we've had a number of questions about divorce. Um, this is pre-divorce, I suspect, saying, can I file a criminal case against my husband and his mistress? And can the police help me catch them? Anonymous message, unsurprisingly, on 4001 there. What does the law say? Um, and ultimately, do the police have a role in a situation such as this? In most parts of the world, uh, this is what you call adultery. Uh, most parts of the world, adultery is not a criminal offense. So there is no chance of, you know, you going and filing a case against your husband and her mistress, his mistress, and making a case out of it. What you can do is it's a ground for divorce. On that basis that he has a... Uh, adulterous uh, relationship, uh, you can file a, a petition in the court for a divorce. It's a ground for, absolute ground for divorce. Is it a crime? In most countries, no. Okay. We've spoken about this on the, on the show before in terms of the proof needed that somebody has been unfaithful and it seems to be very, very difficult to prove. It's very difficult to prove. And I presume the police would, I don't know... I need to witness it. I don't know how you'd engineer a situation where this would happen. In, in, in very many parts of the world, it is, of course, you can use a private investigative agency to uh, check on your spouse mm -hmm. and the activities. But in UAE, it's prohibited. Okay. Uh, that is one. And the other thing is, like, it's a proof is with witnesses. You can have witnesses coming into court saying that, you know, uh, that they are aware of a different relationship the man has or the lady has, whichever mm -hmm. way, whichever case it may be. Okay. But it is only a ground for divorce and uh, nothing else. Okay. I really hope that helps and I really hope you're you're okay. Um, if you need any follow-up messages on that, get in touch on 4001. And many of our messages, unsurprising given the topic um, of family law, are anonymous today and that's absolutely fine. Um, no name here saying, when I divorced my husband, the court made a settlement agreement. It states I've got full custody and he needs to pay a monthly fee to support our children plus costs, doctor, etc. Now, all our prices are up and in the settlement signed and stamped by the court in Dubai, it's stated that financial payments will be reviewed yearly and adjusted by inflation. Now he's refusing to pay any extras, but I really need it. My dealer alone is 3000 per month. Should I go back to court? She has to go back to court for a specific reason, not exactly for divorce or custody because she already has it. Uh, what she has to go is for the increment of the uh, maintenance. So that she can always file, but she has to be very specific in filing that, uh, not to confuse issues, 
just to file for increase in the maintenance. And in terms of, I guess, quantifying this, is yeah. it a case of needing to prove what costs are? Can she just estimate a number? How- she can estimate a number and give a request, but the, ultimately the judge will decide what has to be sanctioned. Okay, and he'll be looking at, or she will be looking at, um, presumably, earnings from yeah, the, the earnings of the side. husband, ex, ex-husband's earnings as well as the cost of living. Okay. All right. Really hope that helps. Um, and H says, does your lawyer have any advice for arranging a child custody agreement with an amicable ex? Is there anything specific we should think about and get in writing outside of general visitation schedules and special dates? Thank you. See, it's a whole document which has to be uh, done when you're looking at a custody of a child and maintenance, etc. So it's always good to have a legal help to do that for you Mm -hmm. because this is we've touched on this before of kind of you know I'm not going to your wife's in the green room so I'm not going to make it weird by role playing that we're getting a divorce (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but let's say we are getting a divorce um, and we have a great relationship and we ultimately want to say we are going to be amicable and this is what's going to work on both sides it's not necessarily enough to have this agreed Yes. See, see, what happens is that it's better to have the document watertight for the basic reason that there can be disputes in the future. Mm-hmm. Of course, now you're amicably settling and walking out. But yeah, but you chuck another, you know, chuck a boyfriend and girlfriend in the mix. You get some extra costs, you know. Yeah. And then it becomes a very sticky issue. Mm-hmm. And as the children grow up, you know, they also have their ways of thinking and then it becomes very sticky. Okay. Lots of messages coming in for you and I am going to surprise you with a text line. I haven't had a chance to brief you. Is that okay? Peace. He's up, <laughs> he's up for the job. A message here saying, if I'm not married and my father is Christian, until what age is he meant to legally, financially support me? In generic terms, I would say 18. Uh, because that is what is the law in most of the countries where you're, you're a dependent till 18 and the parents have to take care of you. Some countries do have as 21, but generic terms, we don't know the nationality of this uh, questionnaire. So uh, it's 18. Does it matter if it's male or female? It doesn't matter, no. You but become a major, you become an adult at the age of 18. I definitely and didn't after feel that, like it. <laughs> after that, you're not the responsibility of your parents. Now, when you... Maybe the the question is a little, uh, uh, I mean, the question must have come from the visa situation where in UAE, uh, a boy, a son can be sponsored up to age 18 unless until he's a full-time student. Mm -hmm. And a girl can be sponsored till she's married. Uh, No age limit. So maybe that's the reason the question has come up. Interesting. That's, it's bad news for me at 41. I can't call my dad and say, can I have some pocket money, Dave? <laughs> oh, yeah. Would have been nice. <laughs> okay, to the text line we go. A message here saying, we are Hindus. My husband said he's converted to Islam and has got married to another Muslim woman. Yep. Is this possible and how can I verify it? Uh, interesting question. Uh, he can see, if you, if you look at the basic uh, Sharia system, you have to have a permission from your first wife to get married again. So if he's already married and if he's trying to convert himself and getting married, uh, it is not considered a legal situation as far as uh, the Hindu law is concerned. And the conversion of him to a different religion is a ground for divorce. Um, As per the laws in India, Uh, it's a ground for divorce uh, if, if one of the spouses has converted their religion. Can I just ask in terms of, in, in, in this situation, you know, this, this woman saying that, you know, he's converted and is married without, as, you, as you're picking up on there, not getting permission. 
what would the the normal process be um, in terms of getting getting married, taking a second or third wife, with in in terms of the permission, the consent yeah. from the first wife? Yeah. So that's they have to get a consent. That's about it. Okay. And uh, in this situation, she can she can she can file a petition. May not be here, but she can file a petition uh, back whichever country she comes from. Uh, for an issue of bigamy. Okay, there you go. I really hope that helps. Um, we've been talking about um, what your specialties are, divorce and death. Yeah. Um, and a message here <laughs> saying, what happens to custody of Muslim parents with two unmarried girls over the age of 18 if the parents die? Uh, they become independent. They're 18? Yeah, they're above 18, yeah. So is, would anyone be financially responsible in that situation if it's if the girls are Muslim and 18 and unmarried? No, no. But only condition is if they're going to get married, uh, somebody has to act as their guardian. A male member has to act as the guardian. Normally, the priority is given to the, the same thing, father's father or father's brother, because uh, in an Islamic situation, for the marriage, the girl has to have a guardian. Okay. Hope that helps. No name on this message, Devon, and saying, how do prenups work? in the UAE um, and eventually possibly would they be upheld in international jurisdictions I'm getting married soon interested in protecting my pre-marriage assets as well as some investments that may yield uh, may yield fruit post-marriage prenups are welcome we do quite a bit of them but it all depends on where you come from mm-hmm. it's okay. based on your nationality Why? Is, can you give me some examples yeah because the rules in each country is different uh, with regards to prenuptial agreements um, I mean, if you take United States of America, the 50 states, states are different. Each state has its own uh, laws, uh, what they will accept in a prenuptial agreement, what they will not accept. Okay, I'm just going to try and play devil's advocate here. So let's say it's a couple getting married here in the UAE, and they're going to get married in Abu Dhabi just for, yeah. for, for ease. And this couple want to have a prenup formed here with a UAE-based lawyer. Would that have any, as we're saying here, kind of... You know, would it be upheld internationally? Or if not, what would you need to do in your home country in order for it to be upheld? We can have a prenuptial agreement made here, but it has to be based on where the nationalities are from. Okay, so that would be stated within it. Yes. So you're seeing quite a lot of uh, prenups. Yes, we do. Because I always feel like this has been, I don't want to say a misconception, but I guess a bit of a understanding, perception, that it's for you know very very wealthy people, um, and I think that's shifting. It's it's a very tricky uh, document, mm. um, you know, because you're you're getting into a, a a marriage with a with an understanding, and this you're putting certain conditions to that marriage. I don't know how that relationship is going to work, but it happens. We do prenuptial agreements, and it's it's way of life, especially as you rightly said, for people who are very wealthy. Good for you. I have to say, though, I think it's a, I think it's a really good step. Where it gets difficult is when one party's going, well, why are we getting married if you think you're planning your exit already? I have had, I have had such couple coming and, you know, one of the spouse crying over it. Mm-hmm. Why are we getting into this? But It's very personal. There's a really good chapter in um, Ramit Sethi's book, which is... Um, how to be rich and his Netflix show, which was I will teach you to be rich. And he's fantastic. Um, and he was talking about, about exactly this, about transparency of finances from the outset. And I'm sure as a divorce lawyer, money is <laughs> one of the main reasons why people can be oh, falling yes. out. Oh, yes. Especially uh, post challenges of the pandemic we had. Really? We've run out of time. 
Thank you so much. Devon and where can people find you if they want to seek out your advice on any of the issues we've been talking today, whether it is, you know, birth certificates, pre and post naps, divorce, of course, any wills and inheritance issues, how to, how to get in touch with you? Just Google my name and email it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or you can send me the word law. Yes. I'll make it even easier. Send me the word law. I will send you a series. I'll definitely my Deva. Really appreciate your time as ever. Thank you so, so much. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. It is all about women's health with Dr. Mariam Awatai. She's got her own clinic in Healthcare City and we've stolen her away from delivering bouncing babies and helping women with all aspects of their health until now, until four o'clock. So if you do have any questions for her, the text lines are open. It could be to do with your own health. It could be someone in the family you're worried about. Maybe you're an expert, second opinion. We are going to be looking at PCOS, busting some myths and of course taking questions too no babies today dr mariam oh always Aww. babies <laughs> what's been happening because i understand there's been a bit of a a bit of a sea change a bit of a shift in the types of birth that you're seeing absolutely helen first of all thank you for having me again it's always a pleasure, always a pleasure. <laughs> and of course i have noticed and i'm sure a lot of my colleagues are noticing that uh, we have more and more requests for natural births and uh, it's not that we don't support natural births. We definitely do. Um, but sometimes we get requests for natural births where there may be risk to the mother and there may be risk to the baby too. Go on then. Tell so, us about all those circumstances. So interesting. Recently, I had a, a woman come to my clinic. Her baby was breech. Um, she was uh, about 36, 37 years old. Her baby was not just breech, but her baby was large and breech. She was a diabetic, um, gestational diabetic, well-controlled, good sugars, um, but her baby was not in the right position. So a breech baby is a baby that's effectively uh, lying upside down. And uh, it was her first pregnancy, and we had a long discussion regarding the mode of delivery, what was best for her, um, etc. And she really, really wanted to have a normal delivery. Now, we looked at the pros and cons. A normal delivery in a breech presentation in a first-time mother is something that we think the risk is just too high. There Mm -hmm. are so many things that can go wrong. The pelvis is untested. The baby can get stuck. Um, The mother can bleed. There can be a lot of injury to the baby. So we generally don't want first-time mothers um, to have natural births with a breech. So what we do is we try to turn the babies. We do what's called an external cephalic version. How do you do this? Oh, it's very interesting. So uh, in the old days, uh, 15, 20 years ago, we used to do it right there in the clinic. Uh, we would say, get on the couch and we would uh, we use our hands and effectively turn the baby. But now, thankfully, we don't do that. We, we do something similar, but in a much more controlled fashion. So we admit the patients onto... Um, onto a labor ward or hospital and uh, we monitor the baby do a ctg make sure the baby's heart rate is lovely we give the mother a little injection just to relax the uterine muscles and uh, and then once we're happy that baby's fine we use our hands we steady the position of the baby in a sort of a longitudinal uh, way so one hand is on the bottom and the other hand is on the head and we begin to turn, physically turn the baby. How long can it take? And it's really, you would be, you would think that it takes such a long time. It does not. Truly, when a baby's about to turn, you think you're doing it, but you're not. What you're just doing is you're just facilitating it. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're bringing the head so that the head is more 
uh, to uh, on a sort of a transverse uh, so side to side. side to side absolutely and then you're pushing slightly on the head and pushing upwards on the bottom and then the baby g- gives you a massive kick <laughs> and when it kicks it kicks itself into cephalic so actually it can take 5 minutes it can take Six or seven minutes, never more than 10 minutes, wow. actually, to do an external cephalic version if it works. But there are risks. Mm-hmm. And these risks always are in terms of, one, how, you know, how big is this baby? External cephalic versions work with babies that are usually smaller, so two and a half kilos, um, definitely no more than three kilos. Um, external cephalic version uh, works where there's enough water around the baby um, and so the baby it's easy for this baby to turn it's also very um, very uh, popular and common and works well if the mother herself has uh, not got any other medical complications or obstetric complications mm-hmm. um, that are there and uh, generally as I said it should not take more than 15 minutes and if it does take longer and you are pushing and pushing, mm-hmm. you've got to be a bit careful because sometimes that's just telling you that it's not, it, you know, it's not this is not a favourable thing and to do. And you know, I think that kind of speaks to such an interesting point that about birth plans and expectations because... Absolutely. Oh, I've said this before, my birth plan, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, my, I've got, still got it in my phone in my notes section. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it, it was, <laughs> take all the drugs... <laughs> Have some music. Do what the doctor says. I love that. No, but, but to be because I'd had friends who'd had these very yes. idealistic birth plans of like this song is going to be playing when that baby comes in. There's going to be this candle and yes. you know and yeah. you know even as you're saying you know wanting to have a, you know a vaginal birth over a C-section. I was like, listen, yeah. you're the one that's got decades of experience here. I know nothing apart from wanting to have a healthy baby in my arms in oh, you know an hour's time. And unfortunately, and I'm sure you've seen this with mums coming back yeah. into clinic after having their babies, yeah. of not maybe having the birth that they'd hoped yes. and that overshadowing um, and, you know, chuck some hormones in there. It can be a really, really distressing time Absolutely. and ultimately grieving for the birth that you that you wanted, you wanted or that you thought you wanted. So, but it's Absolutely. it's fantastic to hear there about, about some options that are available, but ultimately Correct. putting the health of mum and baby first, first and saying, do you know what? We've done our best. I'm it's so just glad not going you to happen. said that. Really important, Helen. Really important. Managing expectations is really one of the key parts of our of our work, actually, mm. in obstetrics. And around 34 weeks, we have something called a delivery planning uh, visit. And in this visit, we read through, go through the birth birth plan with parents, with you know couples, look at what they put on it, and sort of go through each aspect of it and say which we think is realistic and which we think may not happen. You know, I want to know you what's know. The, what's the <laughs> what's been the most there requests oh. that you've seen on a birth plan. Oh, a lot. <laughs> Come on. No names. Okay, no names. And this wasn't even in this country, actually, okay. I have to tell you. We're safe. Go on. <laughs> well, I had a birth plan that said, uh, Dr. Marrow, when you deliver that placenta, I want you to wrap it up nicely um, and uh, just allow my husband and I to take a piece of it and eat it. <laughs> the time of birth yes. uncooked raw no judgment no judgment but no not judgment but not there. for me but it was quite interesting and i thought how am i gonna do that how do we do that 
Did you do it? There are no knives and forks. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people do oh, have dear. it, you know, encapsulate placentas oh, and they take do. it as a supplement. But absolutely. Not, not on the spot. Not on the spot. Not on the spot. You know, planting it in the garden is absolutely fine. I don't mind. Turning it into lotion is lovely, but I can't find you forks and knives. I'm sorry. <laughs> Dr. Marion with us. <laughs> I'm curious, what are some of the most common misunderstandings or misconceptions that you hear from women about their gynecological health? Okay, thank you, Helen. Lots, and I'll start with fertility. The fact that a lot of women come in and think that, you know what, Dr. Marion, I'm 37, I'm really worried, I won't be able to have babies. That's so common, you hear that a lot. It is not true fertility can be extended and is being extended a lot, lot longer um, because of the technologies that we have to keep you safe. Funny, we had a message saying exactly that. Can a healthy 49-year-old woman get pregnant and deliver a healthy baby normally? And the answer is yes. There are odds and there are risks Definitely the risk of conception and whether or not she needs assistance, the risk of miscarriage even when she becomes pregnant is slightly higher, the risk of medical morbidities is slightly higher. But if that pregnancy is well managed and uh, her, her delivery is well managed, she will be able to deliver normally, uh, not by cesarean section. Um, and we'll be able to have a take home, you know, take home a very healthy baby. But I have to uh, reass- uh, really, really uh, say here that those pregnancies have to be managed. Mm-hmm. It's funny because it's just in the news in the UK this week. Uh, Victoria Corin Mitchell, um, who is a TV personality, she's actually a professional poker player, um, gave birth to her second child. Um, at the age of 51. Wow. So there's a big spike in articles out of the UK talking about, you know, five years ago, only about 50 women over the age of 50 gave birth. And in the last year, about 250. Correct. But I think we know, we know so much more, as you're talking about there, about, you know, assisted, um, assisted helper there, about, and I guess really about being in the best hands for every stage from conception all the way through Correct. to birth. Other misconceptions, so, so to speak. Lots of other misconceptions. I mean, there was the the, the, the one about periods. The one of uh, the fact that women feel that uh, you know a period pattern has to be fixed. So they start their period, and uh, five to six days later, it should be done. Um, people do not realize that periods have a wide variation to them, plus or minus seven days. Um, So they can be late by seven, early by seven, and they will still be normal. You can have a period for three days, take a break in between and have more periods. Two or three (laughs) days later, have some more. Um, And so there is a large variety of of periods. Why might that happen? And and obviously we'll take out that your period might be late because you might be pregnant, which I'm sure is a lot of of worry. But apart from that, why might someone, you know, start their period a week earlier or a week late. You're so lovely. I mean, it's a variety of reasons. The stress of our lives mm. with a raised prolactin level is a really common cause of it. Um, sometimes it's anovulatory. So not every cycle is associated with the release of an egg um, 14 days prior. And so sometimes anovulatory cycles can be slightly delayed or slightly earlier. Um, weight. Sometimes if a woman has had uh, dietary inconsistencies, put on a little bit more weight than usual, that can sometimes delay uh, a period or make it come a little earlier, make it a little bit dysregulated. Um, And multiple too much exercise, for instance, if a woman is, um, you know, 
taking on you know too much mm-hmm. um, physical activity, uh, lo- you know really not uh, being within the parameters of normal. This can sometimes affect the period. It's usually re- associated with a raised level of a hormone that we call prolactin. Um, and as long as it's temporary and it doesn't sort of persist and it's you know it comes once, uh, maybe twice but no more than that in a year, mm-hmm. um, we would not want to, to treat or medicalise. Mr. Chair saying IVF expedites menopause, myth or fact? Oh, it's a very interesting, it's a myth. Um, I think the idea behind IVF and expediting menopause is all, always the idea behind ovarian reserve and how we're all born with just a finite amount of eggs, three million eggs. And of course, if a woman is having... Um, an IVF on just one cycle, two cycles, even three cycles, that is not going to deplete her reserves, you know, significantly and uh, therefore make her menopausal a lot, a lot earlier. But I would say that, it, you know, the, the trend towards having an infinite amount of IVF cycles. So I personally, as a doctor, has seen a patient come into me who had had nine IVF cycles Back to back, I think this is irresponsible. That's a lot for the body. Yeah, I think it's irresponsible. But um, in itself, it does not lead to an early menopause. Um, AMH is a good indicator of fertility, myth or fact. Exactly. Okay, so AMH, antimalarian hormone, I get asked this a lot. Antimalarian hormone is really a test to look at your antral follicle count. How do I, what do I mean by that? I mean, how, how, what, what are your follicles? How much? What is the reserve? It's quantitative, really. What is the ovarian reserve? That's what an AMH is looking at. What is fertility? Fertility mm. is the ability to become pregnant. And it is very possible for women who have extremely low AMHs. So I'm talking about an AMH of 0.001. For that woman, if she does ovulate and produce a healthy egg and that healthy egg gets fertilized, she will be pregnant. So fertility and antimalarian hormone are not completely aligned. They're not aligned. AMH is important in in IVF cycles, in assisted reproductive cycles, because it does allow the clinician to kind of triage patients and say, look, if the reserve is really low, the chance of successful IVF becomes slightly lower. But this is in an assisted reproductive uh, uh, um, environment. Whereas if an AMH is normal in the normal range, the chance of her being successful at IVF is uh, is high. But in terms of a general population, antimalarian hormone does not directly correlate with fertility. Hope that helps. Dr. Mariam Awatai, she's got her own clinic there in Healthcare City, but we've stolen her away to answer my questions and yours. We are going to get the text line very soon indeed. We were just talking earlier, though, about some of the common misconceptions that you hear from, from women, but I'm, I'm sure see, you know, on social media and, and, and everywhere, Dr. Mariam. Um, and you wanted to draw attention to PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. And I have been diagnosed with this in the past. And then when it came to actually going to see someone else, going, well, no, it's not that at all. Because there still seems to be quite a lot of confusion about what constitutes a proper diagnosis for PCOS. Are you okay to break it down for us? What are we talking about? And what can some of the consequences be of this condition? Fantastic, uh, Helen. So polycystic ovaries, I'm sure there isn't um, a female who hasn't actually even heard of this. It's so, so common. And it's so, so overdiagnosed. And actually, quite sadly, um, missed 
uh, in some women who have more subtle symptoms. But uh, polycystic ovaries, it is an inherited condition. It is related to insulin resistance. Um, and uh, we see this condition or we diagnose this condition usually looking at three aspects. One is we want to look at the clinical symptoms. So we want to make sure that the woman has got symptoms commonly. It's abnormal bleeding patterns. It's weight gain. It's acne. It's hair fall. It's excessive hair growth, um, etc. Two, sometimes the, the second diagnostic criteria is an ultrasound scan-based diagnosis, where when we have a look at your ovaries uh, on ultrasound or do a pelvic ultrasound scan, we find large pearly ovaries. Um, they are generally quite thickened. In other words, we described the meaty part of the ovary as a stromal thickening. And around the ovary, you tend to see a peripheral distribution of tiny little cysts. These are not actually cysts, they're follicles, but they are underdeveloped, tiny little, almost like a necklace surrounding the ovaries, either one or both. Um, and when we see this picture, we describe this as polycystic ovaries. Mm -hmm. Also, these cysts have got to be smaller than 10 millimeters in size. And they also have to be more than 10 in number. So it's a very strict diagnosis. It's not enough to see just multiple or a few follicles and call it polycystic. And then the third aspect of the diagnosis actually um, relates to the biochemistry, so the blood tests. And m most recently, that has been updated to put more emphasis on the androgens, so the testosterone, which is really important because most women with polycystic ovaries will have a slightly raised um, uh, androgen index and androgens really do feed into the cycle of dysregulation with polycystic ovaries. So when we have all of this, um, the clinical symptoms, the ultrasound findings and the biochemistry, we um, we say that, yes, this woman has got polycystic okay. ovaries. And then from that information, just FYI, I had none of that. I was 25. I was definitely overweight. I think I had a few cysts on my ovaries and this doctor was like, this is what you've got. And then I spent the next kind of five years worried that I was never going to be able to have children. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, yes. it's, it's a... As you say, it's overdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. It's also under-informed. Correct. So is it a case of you can cure this or is it a case of managing this? Yes. This is a great question actually Helen and the answer is firmly you can manage it. So where the diagnosis has been made, there is no cure but you can manage it and managing it does not mean popping pills for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It does not mean having excessive amounts of gynecological visits or fertility issues. It just means lifestyle because there are some women who you will definitely need to put on some medication, either to regulate their periods, to help with fertility, to help with the androgen symptoms like the acne uh, and the weight gain and the hair loss, etc. Those are specific symptoms that can be uh, treated. Um, but after that treatment, it is going to be lifestyle and uh, it's incorporating a low carbohydrate diet, good activity, at least 150 minutes of exercise. And we're not talking about high intensity exercise, mm, just moderate, moving. exactly, just moving um, per week and just generally making sure that weight is controlled. On that topic, a message here saying, I have PCOS and insulin resistance. My endocrinologist has prescribed Monjaro. I've just started it and I am losing weight, but how can it affect my PCOS and ovaries? So Monjaro is yes. that um, weight loss. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. And I know an awful lot of people who are having incredible results with it. Absolutely. A few years ago, if you'd asked me this question, um, Helen, I'd have said, oh, no, just use glucophage. That's it. It's fine. And exercise and all of this. But actually, there is evidence coming out and 
not just anecdotal, but actually en- evidence. The studies are not huge, uh, and that's because it's not been around for, for long, but semiglutides are really something that can help. Things like uh, Monjaro, things like Saxenda, um, these drugs, if used in a controlled fashion, mm-hmm. so you sit with your endocrinologist, you decide how much weight loss is, is expected per week, um, and for how long these injections are going to take, start with the minimum dose and increase the dose um, You know, gradually really um, watching the weight, it can be extremely useful. So that's the weight loss side. What Correct. do we know about impact on fertility and ovaries? Exactly. Is anything there? Very much so. So once you lose weight, 10% of the existing body weight is all you need to lose. And that is enough to trigger a very positive response in the menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. in the ovulatory patterns, in the androgens, um, virtually everything. So it is like a root cause problem. Um, And so if you are able to lose just 10% of the existing body weight, women will notice that they will start having ovulatory patterns. Their periods will become much more regular. They will find that their androgen indexes go down so that uh, the resistance in the weight loss is is less. So they even lose more. Um, They will notice the hair is better. Generally, energy is better. So there is a direct correlation between weight loss Good and to know. Uh, PCOS. Thanks, Dr. Mariam. How do you feel about a quick fire round? We've got four minutes left. Let's see yes. what we can do. We've had a number of messages going. A good friend of mine had her baby at the age of 52 here in Dubai. Little one's now two years old, gorgeous and thriving. And I think it's really important to listen to this point, this message out saying, listening to the show, I think it's vital to differentiate between reducing fertility with age and ability to carry a pregnancy. Unfortunately, I know just how difficult it is to get pregnant in late 30s and early 40s. You're absolutely right. It's a great comment. Um, got a message here regarding younger ones saying my girl is 11 and a half in the start of her period I feel sad as the age of puberty has shifted but um, should I start her with some irons or vitamin I've been anemic all my life and I don't want the same for her can you quickly go through any do's and don'ts absolutely so I'll start with the last one the latter the 11 year old who started her periods it is a it is a slight shift in puberty but 11 is still completely normal Um, as long as it's over 9 years old we're very happy Um, this is not a problem but if you have a family history of anemia and your daughter has started her periods at 11, I think it would be sensible to put her on an iron supplement. And it could be anything. It could be a syrup. It could be a gummy. Um, It just has to be a nice uh, iron uh, type of preparation that is kind on her stomach and does not give her constipation and other side effects. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, And a message here saying, estrogen levels tested low with some perimenopausal symptoms. Doctor prescribed the marina coil to control a regular painful period coupled with HRT gel once a day to curb symptoms. It's been over a month. I've broken out on acne with weight gain. Ah. Doctor said to wait until about three months, but wondering how long before it settles. That's a gutter, isn't it? That is a gutter. I feel like I'm taking control and now I've got symptoms that I really hadn't predicted or that I want. You're so lovely. That is a gutter. Now, I do not want to dish you the this the the myrina coil is an extremely good um, device which is very useful in the right circumstances but barring the fact that i'm not sure of the age of this core of this um, uh, this person on the on the on the call if if you are under the age of 40 and you have painful periods and your estrogen levels are slightly low, it is not the right thing, I think, to give the Mirena and give estrogens as I don't think that that is the... Because it's not a diagnosis for perimenopause and it's not a diagnosis for the menopause. Mm. And and Mirena itself may make the periods lighter, but uh, it may not actually affect pain. 
Um, if you are over 40 and, and uh, definitely having other symptoms of the perimenopause, such as the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes, hot sweats, the vaginal dryness, all the discomfort that is associated, the pain, joint pains, etc., and you are seriously considering HRT, hormone replacement therapy, then I think Mirena is an excellent tool. And it's true, Mirena contains levonorgestrel, which is a progestogen. And of course, being a progestogen, it's going to affect your skin. It's going to affect your moods. It's going to affect the breasts. Um, and uh, it causes spotting for up to 90 days. Um, so it's not without side effects. But I do agree with your doctor that if you persist with Mirena, it does get better. Thank you. Dr. Marin, we've run out of time. Oh, I know. I always miss you. I know. Miss this lovely audience. We'll have you back. (laughs) Don't worry. Very soon indeed. In the meantime, though, for anyone that wants to get in contact with you, with your permission, can I send your website to anyone that gets in touch? Definitely. My pleasure. Amazing. You can find Dr. Marim Awathai, obstetrics and gynecology. She's got her own clinic. But if you send me the word doctor, I will send you the link. You can contact her, find out more. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Really, really appreciate it. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Joining us in studio today from Kamali Clinic, Sneha John, clinical psychologist. And we're having a bit of a deep dive into ADHD. Now, I'd love to hear from you guys on this, whether it is your own diagnosis, that of a child, or indeed if you've got any questions or confusion. The text lines are open and you don't need to put your name on those messages if you'd rather not. Because apparently the the current statistics worldwide, the number of people with both children and adults receiving a diagnosis is definitely higher than any of us had suspected. Sneha John, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Helen? I'm really well, thank you. Really well. I'm I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I've been reading and listening to so much more about... ADHD. Um, And I think awareness is absolutely crucial. And we're not talking about fixing people, but more to do with working with people and how their brains brains work as well. Can I ask then, is this something that you have coming into clinic quite a lot, Kamali, that parents are concerned about perhaps? Yes, uh, I do see quite a lot of uh, children and adolescents and even adults with ADHD. And uh, parents are quite concerned because they do not know whether it's just challenging behavior or is it uh, something more. So mm-hmm. they do come in for that. Yeah. Can I ask you, and forgive my ignorance, what is the difference between ADD and ADHD? Because it feels like the latter has replaced the former in our kind of common vernacular. So ADD is definitely attention deficit disorder. So it's just uh, the inattention, uh, forgetfulness, being disorganized, uh, not able to uh, remember, especially long term information and short term as well. So executive function. So all to do with the executive functions of the brain. Okay. Except for the, the ADHD, there is the hyperactivity for part of it, which is more to do with the impulsivity, there's emotional dysregulation, uh, there's the hyperactivity part of it, which, you know, such people are not able to control their emotions and their behaviors. Mm -hmm. So in an ADD uh, person, you might see that they might be calm, but they get distracted and often lost. They zone out. So you might see in, in a classroom that such children are lagging behind. They are not finishing their work. Uh, but in the ADHD, it's very evident that they may be disrupting the class. They may be talkative. Um, and, you know, quite, uh, quite apparent that their behaviors are challenging. So that's the thing. 
So it's the H is the hyperactivity piece. So would you get children who perhaps are diagnosed with ADHD without the hyperactivity because it's now become a bit of an umbrella term or is ADD still a kind of standalone diagnosis? ADD is a standalone diagnosis. So when we diagnose, we'd say, okay, there are certain criteria. And if it is just predominantly inattention, we'd say that that is an ADD chat. Yeah. I'm getting ready for the science part now. Yeah. Her, John. What exactly is ADHD? What is happening or perhaps not happening in the brain to help us understand this a little bit more? So in our brain, there is the prefrontal lobe. So that's actually responsible for all the thinking functions. Uh, so the prefrontal cortex is responsible for, as you said, executive functions, problem solving, reasoning, working memory, speed, uh, memory, all of those things. So in a person with ADHD, these these functions are not working at par, so it's slower. And also there, there are these neurotransmitters that all of us have, and they need to be released in the right amount. So in people with ADHD, the dopamine and noradrenaline is low. Okay. So that's the reason why they might crave that reward in the form of different other things. And hence, they, it looks like they might be you know, driven by a motor in their brain because it's trying, they're trying to compensate for what they don't have in terms of the dopamine. Um, I hate the word normal. I really don't think it's helpful at all. But are there any ways that an ADHD brain might outperform or perform differently to a kind of a neurotypical brain? And I'm thinking about that ADHD superpower, which I think is so, so important to highlight. So you would see that the brilliant minds, a lot of them have a diagnosis of ADHD and that's because they're so creative. So there are no limits in terms of how they can imagine and create things because of the way that their brain functions in a single minute, they're able to find at least five different things for one topic. Uh, and also that's a thing. So their, their processing speed is really quick. You know, I've, when I do these assessments, again, it depends uh, on the presentation, but I see that the, the person can grasp things quickly. That means that they really can understand and learn things very quickly. And that's that's a thing. And they also are quite an innovator. So they, they are able to innovate and see solutions out of problems that might be kind of a, a stumbling block for a neurotypical brain. So I love working with such people because they call it life hacks, you know. So I have lots of, you know, patients who say I have life hacks and I can help you with this. So that's a very different out of a box way mm -hmm. and risk taking, taking risks, which again, like it's I, I do see that they have some awareness of the, you know, kind of risk, but sometimes they do not know how much risk it can be kind of detrimental or not, but they are avid risk takers. <laughs> so interesting. Okay, we are going to go to the text line next. Neha John is with us today, clinical psychologist from the Kamali Clinic. Um, let's talk about some of the, I don't want to say risk factors. I don't want to be talking about ADHD in a negative light at all, but I guess some of the causes... Sneha, that um, you've been able to point to through research and through our increased, um, you know, the, the work that's being done around this. When we're talking about why some people might or might not have ADHD, what does the data say? So the data says that uh, genetics plays a big role. So if you see uh, parents, grandparents, um, up to the third generation, there could be a factor for the next generation to also have ADHD. Also, maternal uh, health during pregnancy. So if there is um, smoking in the picture, if there is alcohol intake, and again, that's, that's quite increased 
uh, I'll call a smoke intake um, and any sort of other drugs that could also, you know, kind of put a risk, any lead intake um, and also a low birth weight. These type of things can also affect. What about environmental factors post birth? Um, I'm, I'm guessing I'm kind of asking about um I don't know, diet now, sleep disorders. You know, we've spoken to sleep consultants in the past who said actually a lot of kids are being diagnosed with ADHD when really they're just not getting the good restorative sleep that they might need that can then lead to the next day not being able to concentrate in class, for example. Exactly. So in terms of diet, if there is a lot of sugar intake, high carbs um, and low magnesium, low zinc, these type of things and omegas, uh, the fatty acids, which we all need in some kind of regulation as well, mm-hmm. that can, uh, I mean, fibers, nuts, whole grains, these are things that we all need. So that can actually affect. Uh, and also, yeah, sleep, uh, poor sleep quality, waking up in the middle of the night, also going to, uh, to bed late, uh, and also not having a very consistent sleep routine. So these things can also kind of be some factors. Sneha John with us today. She is joining us from Kamali Clinic. I wanted to ask you about some of the common misconceptions Mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe exist in society or perhaps you've had parents coming to you with regarding the diagnosis or indeed the, again, I'm not sure how to say it's not a disorder as such, but a diagnosis of ADHD. So how can parents and educators kind of distinguish between typical childhood behaviour and symptoms that might indicate and so maybe you can share some of the common misconceptions that you've heard over the years so i've heard that adhd is a result of bad parenting oh no (laughs) which is no i mean that's a big no-no and it's not because of that it is definitely uh, the way that the brain works okay so uh, parents are not responsible for it second thing um, i've heard that uh, adhd means bad children Again, it's it's not the case. I mean, uh, the, that's that's definitely not true. And then, ADHD only affects boys, and not girls. It's more common in boys. Is it's, that fair? Yeah, it's more common, but it also affects girls more so. The attention deficit disorder rather than the hyperactivity. The, rather than the hyperactivity, but we do see that as well. So that's those are some uh, misconceptions as well. Um, and then, uh, in terms of you know. Uh, what was the other question that you asked? I guess about about distinguishing between typical childhood behaviour. We've had a message here saying, how can you distinguish between ADHD and a child who perhaps has too much on their plate? Mm. So typical ADHD looks like the symptoms such as being quite forgetful, mm-hmm. being disorganised, being um, easily kind of losing things and also not able to organise yourself uh, in terms of your work. Uh, and remembering as well as planning. So all of the, all that you need to kind of get things done for more than six months. So if you see that it's affecting school or work or home functioning um, and also personal relationships, that's when we kind of look at, okay, this possibly is something beyond. Okay. Um, and, and, and if it is something that's, if you say it's, it's, you know, you have a lot on your plate, again, that's to do with stress. So it, let's see if we kind of take things one by one, if, they, if you take them down, uh, is it going to be easier to focus? Is it going to be easier to complete things? Mm-hmm. But if you feel like you're scattered in your mind and it's just not easy to get anything done, um, just, you know, you, you have a lot to do, you know it, but you, 
such people just kind of tend to just approach it from angles they don't know how to. So I usually kind of to, to explain the analogy, I say an ADHD brain is a train without a conductor. Oh, that's an interesting one. Okay, so let's talk about diagnosis then, Sneha John. Tell us a little bit about how you, or indeed, maybe it's a neurologist, maybe it's an occupational therapist, or perhaps it's a whole you know, host of experts together, how you would come to a diagnosis. What are some of the questions or indeed tests that might exist? So uh, there, there are a combination of clinical interviews that we do. Uh, so that, that's usually, um, if it's for children, the parent, uh, there could be the teacher involved and also an observation of the child in, in the clinic. Uh, and also if it's for adults, it's again more clinical interviews uh, with uh, usually an adult psychiatrist to ask them questions from their childhood as well as the current functioning at work. And then there are these psychometric tests. So these are tests that are recognized all over the world. So these are cognitive batteries and we usually do them where um, it consists of paper, pencil or digital it, it looks at five core areas of the brain. So, you know, and it looks at the functioning across those, those areas. Um, and we're able to look and kind of find out if um, it could be ADHD by looking at the performance across these areas, and then we can make a diagnosis. Can I ask you, um, I don't know if this is a controversial question, but what are the benefits to getting a diagnosis? So getting a diagnosis definitely means that you're not in the dark anymore and you really have clarity on what you're dealing with. So the level of blame and kind of, you know, that that sort of, oh, no, am I the cause of this? It just goes off your shoulder. So I really feel that a lot of people have a sigh of relief when they know, oh, this is the reason why I'm experiencing these things. Mm -hmm. Right. So and also it kind of helps then to take the right steps in terms of treatment, in terms of lifestyle changes, uh, and also for loved ones to help and support. So it really does help. Um, Sneha, I wanted to ask you about treatment. Um, you know, what are some of the treatment options? And ultimately, if someone decides to go for medication, what does that medication do to the brain of someone who has a diagnosis of ADHD? So the available treatments that we do have is definitely medication. And uh, and also there is the brain training or brain RX, which is uh, both kind of used uh, together. So if you do go for medication, uh, what the medication does is it increases the uptake of these neurotransmitters. So as I said, the, the dopamine levels in a way that is healthy and not too much. So it is and then that helps the person then regulate uh, again their attention span and concentrate better and their activity levels and then it becomes at par. Um, I was listening to an interview with Dr. Daniel Amon recently who was talking about the topic of medication and he was saying he has um, a client who I think he said is a, is a, a writer um, and she only takes medication when it suits her cause, because actually some of the traits that she has with her ADHD is actually really beneficial to what she does in terms of mm -hmm. having multiple plot lines going at the same time and wanting to be hyper-focused. Is that an option or do you, does it tend to be recommended that someone maintains a level of medication in their system when it comes to treating ADHD? So it, again, like it depends from individual to in individual, but it is recommended that they do maintain a level of the medication mm. in their system. Uh, because again, like this medication is altering the way that these neurotransmitters in the brain works. So it's helpful for it to be kind of sustained uh, over a period of time. 
Okay, um, I wanted to um, go to the text line, if you don't mind, because I've had a number of questions. Um, one is here from Dee saying, Hello, uh, daughter is 12 and has struggled with what I've assumed are symptoms of anxiety for a couple of years. She's been seeing a counsellor, which is really helping. Um, her dad was diagnosed as a teenager with ADHD. And the more I look into it, the more I think it might be a possibility for her. I don't want to pigeonhole her or push for a diagnosis, but I'm looking for some guidance about what symptoms are because I know it can differ from boys. I wouldn't say she's hyperactive, uh, hyperactive, but she's generally quite disorganised, forgetful, seems to have lots of whirling thoughts constantly. She gets panicky about being late or forgetting things and struggles to prioritise or focus. Doesn't do very well in loud or crowded spaces. Um, I know it's difficult on the text line because um, some of these symptoms could be put down to anxiety or even just being a teenager. But I wondered if I'm missing a trick and if there's an expert that could help in some way. What would you recommend to this parent? I think it must be a mum because she's talking about her dad being diagnosed there. So uh, what I'd recommend is that, again, like getting a formal diagnosis is a good idea to get a first step into what is going on. As as you, as you it was mentioned that anxiety uh, can over, you know, kind of overlap or look like ADHD. But the difference is that in ADHD, the, the symptoms of uh, being disorganized is very consistent um, and it's and it's something that you'd see you know over a, a long period of time more than six months you'd see that you know th- there's procrastination happening there's a lot of motivational issues and even uh, kind of just uh, remembering simple things it, it's not easy and even kind of uh, keeping in track of conversations and not zoning out so these type of things so mm-hmm. if, if you notice that the attention span is less than five minutes on anything it can be anything uh, and also kind of especially with work if it if it's schoolwork a household anything that requires a bit of effort uh, and that becomes a bit hard uh, then it's it's important to kind of get it kind of further uh, assessed also because of the family history as okay. well yeah message is saying is your guest familiar with the work of dr gable mate and his book scattered minds what's her opinion please Ooh. now this this book kind of looks at um, I guess a kind of impact of childhood stress um, on and kind of ability for the brain to form cognitive um, reactions. Have, are you, have you read it at all? Are you familiar with um, Dr. Gable? Definitely I am. And I think he's done a lot of work on stress and trauma, uh, you know, the childhood trauma as well. So um, I, I do see that there is a lot of impact of stress in early childhood that can affect uh, the way that the, the brain functions and also kind of how easily uh, kind of, I would say, susceptible a person is to towards uh, stressful things and yeah, hence... Emotional yeah. dysregulation. Yeah, exactly. His, his work on trauma is really, really fascinating. Um, if you do want to read more about him, I, I would. Um, I just did an interview recently with Diary of a CEO and um, Stephen Bartlett and he was talking about some of his... Um, his own emotional dysregulation over the last year. He did that Prince Harry interview. It's a really, really fascinating listen. I'm going to try and squeeze in one quick question. I might get in trouble for it. Um, It's about 45-year-old female recently diagnosed with ADHD saying, about 10 years ago, I had emotional regulation issues with depression, episodes of self-harm, but didn't seek help. Now I feel like it could be aggregated due to ADHD. Any tips on regulating emotions without meds? And could menopause trigger anxiety? I'm going to put the menopause question to Dr. Mariam, who's joining us after three o'clock. But regulating emotions without medication. As a clinical psychologist, uh, what do you think, Sneha, about that? So I I would really recommend in terms of um, a lifestyle of of only focusing on things that you can control and also kind of being um, able to, I would say there's, there, there is quite a lot of good strategies available on, on, um, 
you know, website called Dialectical Behavior Therapy. So that's just simple tips, simple kind of techniques that you can actually use to be more present to your emotion uh, in a safe place and also to be able, be able to kind of process it without judging it mm-hmm. and just being you know, open to release it so that, you know, you wouldn't have to kind of keep it in. So it can be an emotion of pain or sadness or or anger or anything. But I always recommend to get some professional help as you go through that so that uh, it would really be more beneficial. So I think we're starting to learn more and more about that mind-body connection as well. And, and I can tell you, after 20 years of being a journalist, often looking at wellness and lifestyle from, you know, doctors looking at the physical body to clinical psychologists at Sosnoha, it's really, really annoying <laughs> that there are no shortcuts. And so much of it comes back to, you know, whole foods, good sleep, regular exercise, power of community, not isolating yourself, having someone to talk to often in a professional way. Um, and yeah, I wish I wish it would be a case of take this supplement at bedtime and everything will be great. But it's sadly, sadly, shortcuts are few and far between. Sneha John, thank you so much. For anyone that wants to contact you, whether they are looking for some support with their child or teen, or perhaps it's looking at Kamali Clinic in terms of assessments, would it be okay to share your website with people if they want to get in touch? Yes, please. Amazing. You can just send me ADD, ADHD, whatever you like on the text line, and I will send you the details of Sneha John speaking to us there from Kamali Clinic. Thank you so much. Really thank appreciate you. your insights. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.